0: Scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let us pray. Lord God, on this day, as we do every Sunday, we ask that you will be with us with the words of my mouth and the meditations that. Those words elicit in our hearts will give you glory, you who are our rock and redeemer. Amen. I'd like us to revisit for a few minutes the way three of the four gospel writers introduce us to the subject and focus of their writing, Jesus of Nazareth whom they assert and we affirm as the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus Christ. Matthew begins his Gospel through the experience of Joseph, the earthly adoptive father of Jesus. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save the people from their sins. Luke unfolds the birth of Christ through the experience of Mary, his mother. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And John begins his gospel in the highest reaches of the cosmos. Not through the role Jesus' parents play, but through the role Christ himself plays as wisdom, logos, word, with God at and before creation. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Matthew, Luke, and John, each writing 30 to 60 years after the death of Christ, have introduced us to him with words that are carefully chosen and beautifully written. Their words are compelling. They become a part of our consciousness and even of our culture from the time we hear them as a child through the ninth or tenth decade of our lives. Whether we are loosely familiar with Christianity or it is a central part of our lives, there is little in these words that is new to us. And in hearing them, it is rare not to be stopped at least momentarily. Our heads lifted, our hearts transported to a place beyond the geography and the circumstances in which we hear them. Now contrast such poetic beauty with the beginning of the gospel in Mark, where after John the Baptist, which is what Whitney read, John introduces us to Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Mark's words are informative, to be sure. They are important, but they are not particularly poetic or beautiful. Their matter-of-fact tone could be describing the proceedings of a city council or a roads and highways commission. In addition, notice what Mark leaves out of his presentation of Christ. There's no story of conception or birth, no heavenly angels, no shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night, No wise men following a star. Instead, a fully adult Jesus simply shows up to be baptized by John the Baptist, hears God confirm him as God's son, is driven to the wilderness to face temptation, and then begins preaching virtually the same message that John had preached. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Why would Mark begin his gospel in such a prosaic way? Why would not he include such beautiful stories of Jesus' birth? Why does he begin with Jesus as an adult? There are a couple of academic theories on this, which are interesting and worth noting. One is based on the generally accepted assumption that Mark writes his gospel several decades before Matthew, Luke, and John write. Writing first, Mark focused on what made Jesus different than the other itinerant religious teachers and healers who had been put to death, namely his triumph. Over evil through his death and resurrection. Over time, as the church learned more about Jesus' teachings and miracles, his origins became of more interest to the church. As in, who was this person that taught us these things and who was raised from the dead? Where did he come from? How did he get to be the way he was? Thus, by the time Matthew, Luke, and John wrote, Jesus' origins had become a matter of interest. And they responded by including stories of his conception and birth and early life. Another wildly held belief is that Mark was writing during a time of intense persecution of Jews and Christians at the hands of the Roman ruler Nero during or right after one of the lowest moments in Jewish history. The destruction of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple which happened around the year 70 A.D. Events which to them would be something like Pearl Harbor or 9-11 to us. Thus Mark had little time to pause for beauty.
0: The word immediately
1: appears in Mark's gospel over and over, many more times than it does in any other gospel. The intensity of what Mark reports of Jesus' apocalyptic teaching in chapter 13 reflects concerns that Mark and his hearers have that the world is going to end very soon. In this apocalyptic context, Mark turns to the adult Jesus as a heroic character who combats evil, who suffers at its hands, who dies fighting it, and yet who ultimately overcomes evil. Beautiful, well-crafted stories of Jesus' origin and birth are simply not on Mark's agenda. There is no time for artistry. Now, whether or not these theories explain why Mark shows no interest in the birth or childhood of Jesus, the impact of Mark's opening Especially when compared with the others, can be instructive for us. Namely, Mark calls us to get to work immediately. The kingdom of God is near, the business of life is at hand. It is time to repent, to turn our attention to the kingdom that Christ brings, to commit ourselves to it, to get to work on its behalf. This get-to-work attitude is instructive for us, whether the times in which we live are ordinary or apocalyptic. Many years ago, the Presbyterian writer Frederick Beatner pointed out how much Mark in his writing notices the little ordinary things about Jesus or that Jesus does. Things that Matthew and Luke and John, who are much more artistic, overlook in their writing. For example, in Mark... When Jesus naps in the boat, it's on the stern that he does it, with a pillow beneath his head. None of the others notice that detail. And when Jesus fed the 5,000 on hardly enough food to feed five, it is only Mark who says that the grass was green, not brown, brown and crackly. Mark tells us that Jesus got up to go to pray by himself. Others say that as well. But Mark adds, a great while before day. Jesus was sitting down opposite the treasury when he saw a widow drop her two cents in the collection box. Only Mark reports how desperate the father said, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And how Jesus found his belief sufficient to heal the sick boy. Buechner concludes, you can say the, they make no difference such details as these, which the others skip, or you can say they make all the difference. What this means for us is that part of the getting to work attitude for the kingdom of God is noticing the details paying attention to people close by, knowing the color of their eyes, the expression on their face, the help they need reaching the water fountain and lifting them up so they can drink, pulling a chair out for them at the table and scooting it back in when they are firm and solid in their seat. When times are ordinary, when life is going along normally, getting to work in the kingdom means being on the lookout for any beauty or need. It is noticing these details about the people around us and responding to them. A year ago on Veterans Day, my wife and I were in a small town in the wine country of Virginia, to which we had traveled for a wedding that I was conducting. We had a day to kill, so we went to a local diner for lunch, and when we entered its one room, which was filled with people, all conversation stopped, and all eyes were on us, because we were the only People there of unknown origin. (laughs) This was the only place that we had been able to find that weekend where we had internet access. So as soon as we placed our order, I began checking my email. An email came from someone in the church that caught my attention, and I immediately became absorbed by it. As I was reading it and thinking about the response I was going to craft, I now remember that there was a man standing next to me at the table trying to talk to me. But I was so absorbed in my email that I didn't look up. I pretty soon realized that Maggie was speaking to him. And when he walked off and out of the restaurant, I noticed, even from behind, that he was a veteran, dripping in medals, trying to welcome us to the town to which he had probably returned after Korea or Vietnam to the diner that he probably frequents every day. I had ignored him. I had failed to see His hospitality and return it. A veteran on Veterans Day. When we left the restaurant, I asked the young woman behind the cash register if the man was a regular, and she told me that he was. I told her what I had done and failed to do. I gave her my card, and I asked her to apologize to him the next time he came in. She said that she would, and I hope that she did. It is the little things we do or fail to do that matter. The pillow under his head, the grass that is green, the widow who is sitting opposite the treasury. These things of small matter matter in life, they matter in the kingdom, they are matters of the kingdom. Instead of angels and shepherds, wise men and stars, it is Mark who lifts these little things before us. Now this get-to-work attitude also holds for Mark in times that are not ordinary times in which the future is uncertain and fear, grounded or not, rules the day. As I said in the introduction, Mark was likely writing writing when the capital city of his beloved land, Jerusalem, had been sacked and the temple which had stood since its rebuilding during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah had been burned. When you read Tacitus, as I have not, you realize that the Christians for whom Mark wrote and Mark himself faced the threat of persecution so horrendous that to recite the details in church would be an act of indecency. When you read chapter 13 in Mark and what he depicts Jesus saying about the destruction of the temple, about persecution, about the coming of the Son of Man, you realize how much Mark and Jesus believed that the days in which they were living were short to be, were apocalyptic in nature. As Beekner writes, at any moment of day or night a knock could come at the door and from there to getting thrown to the lions or set fire to as living torches at one of Nero's evening entertainments took no time at all. Mark's apocalypticism was rooted in his experience. It is perhaps One reason he didn't feel he had the time to write warm and fuzzy stories about the birth of Jesus. Now to bring this home to us, it is an open question in our day as to whether or not the times in which we live qualify as apocalyptic. Is the fractiousness in our political climate such that we may never be the same again? Are the dangers to which people point? A nuclear North Korea, Iran, noticeable swings in weather and disasters, terrorism, virulent nationalism and racism. Are these truly threats? to our existence or not is our system of government our way of life the future of our children in danger if times are apocalyptic and we ask and we act as if they are not then we are unwise even foolish if times are ordinary and we act as if they are apocalyptic then we can be destructive. It is nerve-wracking sometimes not to know or not to be sure. But whether our times are apocalyptic or not, we are alive today. And presumably like Mark's readers and hearers, but perhaps unlike Mark himself, we have passed through beauty. We have beheld the birth of Christ. We have sung its carols. We have heard its instruments and voices of its anthems. We have lit candles. We have seen their light flicker in the faces of children. We have caught the whiff of smoke as we have extinguished them. We have left this sanctuary, other sanctuaries, in the cold of night with the strange warmth of silent night on our lips. And under wondrous star, we have joined with the angels singing. Even though Mark only introduces us to Jesus when Jesus is fully grown, because of Matthew, Luke, and John, we have been able to welcome Christ as infant, as Messiah, as child, Born to set us free. We have paused from the intensity of work and study and college applications and job hunting, and we have connected with friends with whom we have not connected in years. We have spent time with family members who are more special to us and sometimes more challenging for us than at any other time of the year but who we have been reminded once again are still family. Our family. And we, theirs. We may not have the wisdom to know if, like Mark's readers and hearers, we are in danger of hearing a knock at the door and seeing through the peephole, not the candles of carolers, but the torches of torturers. But in the birth of Christ, we believe that the kingdom of God has come near, nearer than it's ever been before, near enough to draw us into it and to elicit a response from us. We know that Mark is correct in reminding us that the only choice worth making is to welcome the kingdom immediately, to grasp it as elusive as it is, to get to work on its behalf, to pay attention to its details, and to trust that what we do in its service Matters. It matters to the one in whose hands we and our world are held. The one whose birth we celebrate. Even while Mark looks at his watch, waiting for the celebration to end, so that he can call us all back to get to work. Amen.